Hey guys, just a quick note before we begin that the show may contain spoilers and adult language, but that's just because we know how to have a good time. Stick around, you'll be glad you did. You are here for me to enlighten you. You ever act like this again, you're barred for life. It's just violent base. It's kind of embarrassing. If you know your lines, then you can forget them. Oh, I get it. It's very clever. <laughs> Hello, peoples, and welcome back to another episode of Esoterica Cinema, the podcast where we take films from the cinematic multiverse and discuss the hell out of them. I am your host for the day, Ryan Siebold, and with me, as always, is a man who has a traveling sideshow team of trained squirrels, Mr. Jason Peters. What's up, Ryan? How's it going, man? Man, that's enthusiastic. I appreciate you. How are you, buddy? I'm good. I've actually been practicing my yodeling skills. I'm, I was uh, really looking forward to that intro there. I love being on this side of things after, you know, just being on your side. Coming so in hot. No, it's good to, yeah, absolutely. Good to swap every now and then. Good old-fashioned. Definitely. Good old-fashioned partner swap. Can't beat it. <laughs> on, uh, in, in Florida here, we just call that Tuesday. So, <laughs> Jason. Yes. I've got to know, buddy. We've been, uh, mm-hmm. you know, missing you a little bit. It's been a couple weeks. Uh, come to find yes. out, I'm reading in the in the tabloids. You got this side hustle traveling a sideshow team of trained squirrels. What's going on with this? Yeah, man. So uh, you may not have recognized this from your bougie palatial estate up in the uh, hills of Tampa. That's right. The hills of Tampa is yep. where Ryan lives. Yep. Times are tough, bro. Times are tough down here in the streets, and so a lot of us are really having to find new and creative ways to supplement our income. So I really started looking for sort of gaps in the marketplace, and what I realized is that the traveling squirrel circus, which is what it's referred to, is drastically That's what it's referred to? So uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So it's kind of like its if formal you, um, name. That's the title? Yeah, it is. Nice. 100%. And if you recall, so uh, we were, we're all very familiar with the infamous Michigan J. Frog episode of Looney Tunes, correct? Yes, yes, absolutely. Now, if, you, now if, now if you'll recall, uh, the gentleman's initial business was a flea circus, correct? That is correct. Yeah, so, so what a lot of people don't know because they never really made like a cartoon or a movie or a TV show or anything about it is the evolution of that business model, it went from flea to squirrel. So then squirrel circuses became all the rage. It's not talked about, but it was not uncommon to walk into a boardroom and see anywhere from <laughs> half a dozen to 24 squirrels running around. And unfortunately, uh, you know, squirrels are really hard to train. And yeah. the liability insurance just got to be way too much to handle at the time. Cut to today. Hey, uh, you don't need to tell anyone we don't have insurance. <laughs> uh, so we're just doing it out there. We're uh, what you might call raw dogging it out there. Very interestingly, uh, I've, I've met a number of other really qualified squirrel circus trainers out there. Uh, one in particular, I, I think you may have uh, heard of her, Miss Candice from the Bloody Bits Horror Show. Welcome to the show, Miss Candice. Oh, wow. Welcome, Candice. Hey, I'm happy to be here. I did want to make a note, though, that uh, I've kind of gone out of squirrels, and now I'm training cryptids. I have a cryptid oh, traveling wow. show. Yeah, I had a line on Momo the Missouri monster, and I could not pass out that opportunity. 
So, wow. Candice, real quick, I have to ask and jump in. What, what are some of the things that you train the cryptids to do? Are there any, like, it's Momo, for example. Let's start with uh, good old good old Momo, uh, the spaghetti monster or whatever. Um, <laughs> uh, a creepy pasta, creepy pasta monster. <laughs> uh. <laughs> so... What we are doing is, you said raw dogging, you know, well, I'm kind of doing that with the cryptids. I'm having them raw dog each oh. other. And it's cryptids okay. in the raw is what we're calling it. Cryptids in the so, raw. So you're like, you're uh, now are you breeding them to make new cryptids? Or is this more of like a, a like an, a unique OnlyFans stream? It's a unique OnlyFans stream. And the hybrids that we create are kind of an extra perk. It's like an unforeseen happy Very accident. Cool. I like Bigfoots and I cannot lie. <laughs> oh, are you kidding me? Dude, Bigfoot I'll... kills it on the OnlyFans oh, yeah. market. Yeah, absolutely. You got the Bigfoot fetish. Yeah, literally crushing it over there. I, I, I'm getting heavy Island of Doctor Moreau vibes. I bet you just go over there and it's all like these mutated like <laughs> beings that should not be. Help us, please kill me. I'm dressed all in white. <laughs> I got ice on my head. <laughs> You've got yeah. a little mini me following you around. Oh, I, <laughs> I cannot wait to make that uh, that meme. <laughs> excellent excellent well hey we've got a movie to look at and it's one sort of movie here and uh before oh wait did you guys did you guys hear that i think i just heard heard a sound i heard that all right people we are back for another segment of listener mailbox that's right we have the listener mailbox that you can enjoy and you can call in whenever you like that number again for anyone who wants to call in, phone number 818-483-6285. Now, this week comes to us from someone that, Candice, I think you're going to recognize this person. Oh, yeah? Let's go ahead and uh, listen real quick. Hey, guys. It's your friend, Eddie the Axe, calling from the Bloody Bits Horror Show. And I uh, was calling up because, well, I, I, was, I wanted your advice on something. I, I wanted your take on something. Uh, why is the Beyond, the movie The Beyond, uh, the best Giallo horror movie? Uh, we at Bloody Bits agree it's the best Giallo horror movie. We wanted to know what your take was on it. Hi. Okay, so there's a little bit of context behind this joke. Like, uh, the funny thing, by the way, I feel like, in, what, 80% of our listener mailbox is just these inside jokes that most of our audience is not <laughs> oh, going to get at all. Yes. So we'll see how long this feature goes for. Um, but can you uh, go ahead and give us a little context on what Eddie's okay, talking about Okay, the there. context is that uh, Eddie, the ex, the main host of the Bloody Bits Horror Show, he's the... And uh, co-star of your cryptids uh, training camp if i'm not mistaken correct oh oh yes definitely <laughs> yeah yeah he's, no one uh, does a cryptids only fan like uh eddie the Axe. yeah he's our fluffer he really yeah. gets them ready for it <laughs> <laughs> two-handed bigfoot <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> when he's got the windsock going oh yeah <laughs> exactly sometimes they need a little pick me up and nothing works better than an axe we have found that out <laughs> But the context of this is that Eddie decided that we were going to have a Giallo month for, I think it was June, which makes no sense. A Giallo live made more sense, but yeah, I don't know. The the man's crazy. Oh, that's true. But, and <laughs> I don't like Giallo movies, so I was like, you guys ever seen The Beyond? And neither of them had seen it. And I was like, if I told you it was a Giallo movie, does that mean we could watch it? 
And of course, <laughs> if, I lie, <laughs> if I lie to you, can I sneak this one in so there? So I thought it would be a great big joke to go on Twitter and say, everybody tell Tim and Eddie what a great Giallo movie The Beyond is. I was like, don't argue with me, just agree with me and let them know. <laughs> I thought, I thought that everybody would know that I knew better, that this was a joke. I thought it was a parent was a joke. Apparently no one else got the joke and everybody just <laughs> dogpiled on me. We're like, what the fuck are you talking about? Are you insane? This is not a Giallo movie. What are you smoking? Yeah. <laughs> it even went into our discord. People were popping in being like, is Candace still on her bullshit? <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> it was, it was ugly. This is the Fulci uh, movie, the beyond. Is yes. That correct? Lucio yes. Lucio Fulci. Fulci yeah. yeah. <laughs> yep. I, I haven't seen it. I That's been okay, on my well, to-watch list for some time. Well, you need to fix um, that. Same. And then listen to the episode. Yeah. <laughs> right. Because it's also got Bobby from the grind bin on it. <laughs> okay. I will definitely check that out. Very nice. Okay. And I believe that wraps up our listener mailbox for the week. Thank you, Eddie, for calling in. Once again, anybody who wants to call in, we do have the number available for you. 818-483-6285. Give us a call. That's right, everybody. But more than any of that, as much as we love your participation, uh, you are here to hear us idiots ramble about films. And Jason, we watched a good one this week and brought Candace in specifically for it. Uh, Why don't you tell us a little bit about it? Absolutely. Today's film is from John Carpenter, 1976's Assault on Precinct 13. And yes, that's the original, not the remake. Google description has this as follows. When the LAPD kills several members of the South Central gang Street Thunder, great name, by the way, the remaining members avenge themselves by way of a bloody war waged against cops and citizens alike. Caught in the crossfire is Lieutenant Ethan Bishop, who's managing a skeleton crew at the local and soon-to-be-closed police precinct. As the gang members close in, Bishop forms an unlikely alliance with a group of prisoners in order to defend the station and the lives of everyone in it. Ryan... I need to know, my friend, what did you think about this movie? How good does that feel to say? Jason. Uh, I love it. <laughs> I would love to tell you right after we listen to this trailer for Assault on Precinct 13. Freeze. This is the police. Drop your weapons and place your hands above your heads. On Saturday, six members of the gang known as Street Thunder were ambushed by the police. On Sunday, the warlords of Street Thunder swore a blood oath to avenge their dead. For the gang called Street Thunder, it is a day of vengeance. It's war in the streets. Oh, Jesus, come on. Come on, I'll give you my money. Just don't hurt me, please. Please. It's terror in the night. It's the most shattering assault on a police station in history. Assault on Precinct 13. This is the siege. It's a goddamn siege. You're going to stay here and hold until somebody comes, okay? We're in the middle of a city, inside a police station. guys jumping back in here on my pilot seat how y'all doing and before we begin now ryan i'm gonna i'm gonna ask you your opinion here in a minute but first candace this actually kind of worked out really well that you came on this week that we watched assault on precinct 13 because i know that you have a very 
strong opinion of John Carpenter. Can you go ahead and, and fill our listeners in on how you feel about it? Oh, John Carpenter is hands down my favorite director. When you sent me the message that it was going to be Assault on Precinct 13, it was kisma. It was magic because I was literally watching They Live when you sent oh, me wow. that message. Like literally <laughs> I was watching it getting ready for a podcast with Daniel. So it was, nice. I was like, oh, fuck yes. Because, you know, I was like, <laughs> I was like, oh, just just give me whatever. You know, I, I can be versatile. <laughs> and the fact that it was sure. John Carpenter just set my heart afire. <laughs> so you had Excellent. seen this film before then, I take it. Oh, yes, definitely. Mm-hmm. Got it. Nice. Ryan, how about you? What's your take on Carpenter? Um, Hit and miss. You know, uh, I, I really love his early work. Um, you know, I, th- I still think it holds up for nostalgia purposes, if nothing else. Um, I do think he's a better filmmaker than you do. I know we've had this discussion before, but also, uh, you know, he did kind of take a little bit of a dip in the nineties. Um, you know, vampires and a couple of those things yeah. didn't really quite hold up for me. Um, in yeah, the mouth of, couple. in the mouth of madness, uh, is that's him, right? I, yeah, that's him. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. That's one of my faves. I fucking love that movie. Um, and, uh, so, you know, uh, I think that, you know, as he got a little older, maybe he started to phone it in a bit, but man, those, uh, seventies and eighties films are just all pretty much classics. I love the fog. I love they live. Um, you know, of course the, the Halloween stuff and all of that. So yeah, big, big fan now. So Candace, very funny thing here. Okay. Uh, you're actually going to have sort of like a bigger impact than you realize. Okay. On this episode, because, yeah, so for a long time, I got it into my head that, like, John Carpenter was this super overrated director. Oh, my God. Okay? Shut your mouth. Yeah. No, no, I know. I know. And 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 here's the thing. By the way, That's you are the not the only, that we're looking you are not for, the the only person to say that. <laughs> I, I, got, I got so much crap for that opinion. And it was on the heels of, like, so admittedly, I'm not a fan of Big Trouble in Little China, oh which I catch a lot of shit oh, for. God. I know. Right? I know. Right? I love Kurt Russell, but I don't love the movie. And it's like, and I want to love it, right? But I just, I couldn't get oh, into it. Oh, my God. Um, my favorite and- non-horror movie. Favorite, absolute wow, favorite. That's yeah, crazy. Uh, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, absolutely. And then I had watched, and it's so funny thing, I had watched Halloween when I was younger. It was actually like one of the first horror movies that like me and my buddy Josh, when we were like 13 or 12, went out and like secret rented from Blockbuster or whatever. Um, and I just didn't get it at the time. Like I, I hadn't really been to horror <laughs> films. So, but I had never revisited from them. Yes. But so anyways, so you told me that you actually texted me. You said, John Carpenter is my favorite director. And I was like, fuck, dude, like <laughs> I don't want to make a bad impression on Candace. Like our first episode is going to be our last with her. Like, or I at least like have to come prepared. Right. <laughs> like if I'm going to come with a hot take, like. Like, like saying her favorite director in the world is overrated. Like, that's a strong statement that I need to be ready to back up. So I was like, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to start off and I'm going to watch. So I've got to watch Assault on Precinct uh, 13 anyways for the fil- for the show. I'm going to watch like his first three or four movies or whatever I can find. And, you know, one of two things is going to happen. Either my opinion will change or like I'll be able to double down and point to some things. Mm-hmm. Funny thing, it was kind of the former, and really? I kind of have to admit that I realize. So I, I'm starting to realize, and and it'll be interesting to see if this carries through through the '80s. But I watched his first three films now, 
including Dark Star, which I do consider his first film. Um, no. And as a matter of fact, uh, <laughs> well, as a matter of fact, I don't know if you saw that um, uh, a little while ago, Tarantino and Avery started their own podcast. The first movie they looked at was Dark Star. Huh. It's called Video Archives. It's actually a super, super fun podcast. But um, anyways, yeah, so like uh, Dark Star is the first. And then uh, I watched um, Assault on Precinct 13, obviously, and then Halloween. And I couldn't get to any more, but so the the thing that I always felt, by the way, uh, I did start off with vampires. I think that was the oh, very no. first John Carpenter I yeah, saw. That's so like, a bad I idea. might have been Yeah, I know, right? It was it was just one of those things where it came out at the time that I was going to the theater a lot and like it was out and so I like snuck in and saw it or something. And I always felt like he was, to your point, Ryan, phoning it in. And I think it was just based on, like, you know, those last couple films that yeah, I happened Ghost to catch Mars, or whatever. Yeah, Empires. Yeah. There was a yeah, few. Even Escape exactly. from L.A. was lackluster. Like, there was a few I have in a there. very soft spot for Escape from L.A. I know it's shit, oh, okay. but I love it. <laughs> Fair. We've and all so, got yeah, those. And, yep. and those movies were popping up on, like, HBO and stuff a lot. We had stolen cables. So, like, that was kind of what I thought of him. So now when I go back, it's like, you know what? Like, this kid, I see somebody who's stoked on making films that I didn't see later. And maybe it was just unfortunate because by that point he was kind of checked out. But going back, like, again, the way that he he works his camera, the way he worked with this limited budget. Dude, I read that he had a – Ryan, you'll appreciate this. I read they had a 24-hour shooting day one time on wow. this thing. In, in, in the jail. And I do. They covered a lot of it. Uh, I'm here to tell you I do not appreciate that at all. <laughs> <laughs> so but I'm, the point is, like, he sold out, right? Like and that. and he didn't even take a salary to make this movie. He deferred his entire salary on this one. So, that's like, passion. he was... Exactly. And that came through. And that's what I recognized in these first three films of his that I missed in the later films. And, you know, because when you're dealing with schlocky subject matter, I think... That plays a big factor in it. So anyways, all of that to say that uh, you could single-handedly be responsible for changing my opinion on John Carpenter. That's great. Which That's beautiful. I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that does I mean, I you. know about hot takes. My God, have you seen my Twitter? <laughs> the things I say. And people get so mad about it. But it's fine if you don't like John Carpenter. You know, he's still there for me. So who cares what you think? <laughs> <laughs> love it, dude. Love but it. if if yeah. your opinion could change and then you could join the club and we could all like you know join the cult together then that's even better absolutely right the more the more members of the cult the merrier more people to drink the kool-aid together i just i respect so much his you know almost guerrilla style of filmmaking and especially on some of his earlier work you know you start to dig into the behind the scenes stuff of a film like assault on precinct 13 for example and he's just hiring friends that don't necessarily mm-hmm. know how to do, uh, you know, the trade that they're hired for or, or the fill the position that, or role that they're doing. They've obviously got set experience, but he's calling his friends from USC uh, and saying, you know, listen, I need a production designer. I need, a, you know, someone to head up the art department. And it's like, dude, I don't know how to do that, but I'm, I want to make this movie with you. And he's like, dude, we'll figure it out. Let's roll. So, um, you know, and uh, we'll get into a lot of these details, but also just him putting... Uh, you know, money into the post-production and really um, prioritizing the look and sound and feel of the film. Yeah. Uh, and everybody just kind of got behind that. Um, so uh, this wasn't a cash grab. He he was in it for the right reasons. And, and there's a totally. lot of endearing stories that you start to read about, you know, them watching dailies on like a sheet in their apartment, you know, and, <laughs> and pinning up a sheet on the wall and just projecting dailies. And, um, 
but they were shooting with Panavision 35 millimeter. I don't know if you mentioned this, but they made this on a budget of a hundred thousand dollars and they shot this yeah. in, in 20 days. So yeah. this is, you know, tip of the hat. That's not an easy thing to do back in 1976 on, you know, 35 millimeter film stock, uh, when you're shooting on Panavision for the first time and using anamorphic lenses, these are all things that you would imagine would need some kind of grace period. Now, again, I know he did dark star, but, um, for all intents and purposes, we're going to call this his first film. But I always I a lot do. of things to talk about it. <laughs> so, um, I got a lot of things to say about this film, Jason, let's get into it, buddy. Yeah, absolutely. So now when we start the film, we get like a very 70s credit sequence, this bold red text on this black with this awesome little John Carpenter synth. I'm sure oh. by now everybody knows that John Carpenter scores his own films. Most of them. Uh, Not I'm all of them. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I had to double check and I looked it up and sure as shit. And I said, fuck yes. And then I had to kind of take a step back and realize, was John Carpenter one of the pioneers of... 80s synth wave. I know we kind of chuck synth yeah. wave and, and vapor wave and less really synthy vibes up to the 80s. But uh, here we are back in 76. This guy's still getting the, uh, you know, getting the moog out and getting those uh, funky wah wah sounds still, out of this. He's still <laughs> making music. Like he score, he makes this, him and his son and his godson make the score for the new Halloween movies. So even if you don't yep. like those movies, oh, wow. the music's still great. Like That's awesome. now That's he's awesome. pretty much gotten out of movies. He just does music full time now. That's his. His, his other passion that he's indulging in. And it's still wonderful work. And like, I always yeah. say that with John Carpenter movies, 50% of the charm for me is his scores. Like sure. you, if you take nice. his scores out of those movies, they're not going to hit the same where you're like, yeah. you're pumped. You're like, this is so fucking cool. I love this so much. It's just not going to hit the same. The score is a, a character unto itself in these movies. I would agree. And I, I never really stopped to consider John Carpenter as being a, a pioneer from a, a music standpoint. I mean, I've always known he scored a lot of his films and all of that, but I never really stopped to wrap my head around like a lot of people probably heard this and said, yeah, we're doing like, give me something like that. So it's pretty Absolutely. simple. This one's nothing like, you know, crazy out of the box, but it's also his first one, and he just went out and did it because he needed it done, and so he figured it the fuck out in 1976 when a lot of this technology wasn't around to make it easy. Yeah, and a lot of, like, video games now have John Carpenter scores. Well, not scores themselves, but scores... But ish. Ish, yeah, that's clearly yeah. inspired by it. Like, they grew up right. watching 80s John Carpenter movies, and we're like, I want to do that. So Yeah. <laughs> I'm surprised there's not, like, a Busta Rhymes remix of this song to be honest <laughs> just sounds like something that would lend itself well to that and then from there we we're, we're opening in a dingy stairwell it's really dark we see a bunch of men marching inside they're sort of hidden in shadow there's a really really hot overhead backlight and we're told that it's saturday 3 10 a.m we get a very shaky tracking shot and after that, we see that these guys are quickly shot by police in a surprise attack. Now, it turns out that these were members of a gang. And from there, we cut to a quick scene of the gang members, uh, the remaining ones, obviously, uh, sitting around. And they actually cut their arms and they pour their blood into a bowl while they're chanting for the six, obviously in reference to the six people that just went down. So a couple things I want to actually ask you guys about here. Well, first thing is one that I'll point out, actually. Um, one of, so this scene in particular, the direct inspiration from that uh, is this entire movie was inspired by the John Wayne film Rio Bravo. 
So John Carpenter very much wanted to make his version of a modern day Rio Bravo. So a lot of the actions that specific characters take are references to actions that the characters in Rio Bravo and other Western of the time engaged in. And I have to admit, I'm not a huge Western guy. But apparently it's quite common for, like, the Native Americans to do this sort of blood brother pact. And that's what they would do when they were engaging in war is they would all, like, slice themselves and combine their bowl, uh, their blood in a bowl and mix it around. And that was, like, you know, commitment to the group or the tribe or whatever it was. So given that, what I wanted to ask you guys and uh, Candice, let's go ahead and we'll start with you. Uh, uh, what's your, what is your experience a with Westerns? Uh, have you seen a lot of them? Do you like them? And then do you think that the Western structure works for or against the film? I think, well, okay. I'll start with my experience with Westerns. Um, I just took like a couple of film classes, like a film appreciation, not actually making films. So that's the mm-hmm. vast majority of my experience with, uh, Westerns is the ones like high noon, uh, some John Wayne ones, more modern ones like Unforgiven. Um, I didn't even mm. actually watch the Leone ones until like this year because I just took it upon myself. Nice. I was like, I've never seen these movies. I need to watch these movies. So spaghetti westerns, I have like very little experience with. But as far as the sure. classic westerns and how it ties in with this film and the structure of it, I think it works um, because I think that John Carpenter's passion for westerns, like, I've heard other people say he just always wanted to make a Western. That's just what he loves. And he tries to make mm-hmm. every movie into a Western. And I, th- I think it works. Cause I think that's part of it. It's like take a Western and then you put it into this like gritty urban LA environment and it still works. Those tropes are yeah. universal kind of. Definitely. Ryan, how about you, buddy? Yeah. I, I loved every minute of it. This, um, I, I wasn't really sure what to expect out of this film. I was kind of thinking it might go a little like the warriors, um, you know, kind of that 80s mm-hmm. uh, gang vibe or street vibe, you know, a uh, bunch of street toughs, you know, carrying boom boxes on their shoulders <laughs> and all of that. Um, I was delighted to see uh, the other film represented that uh, he was inspired by was uh, Night of the Living Dead. Um, yes. And to see these gang members completely stoic, silent, not saying a word, just as them kind of portrayed as this impending doom, um, I almost kind of saw... Th- a little of maybe of what the directors were going for in that film we covered last season, the void with the uh, hooded members outside okay. of the hospital. Oh yes. Cause we just covered that <laughs> a couple of months ago on bloody bits. And while okay. I was watching this, I wrote in here, there's a lot of similarities between the void and assault on precinct 13. Yes, absolutely. I think this did it right. I don't think the void did it as correctly. No, uh, yeah. personally, that's just my take on it. But, um, uh, yeah, I thought um, I love the Western elements. I love the back against the wall. So are you a Western wall. guy, though? Do you I like am. Westerns generally? Yes. Okay. Now, but I will add to that that my uh, experience with Westerns kind of starts where Candace's leaves off. Like, I started with the spaghetti Westerns. I wanted to mm. go with um, the Sam Peckinpah. I wanted the grit. I wanted the blood and the squibs and, and the stare downs and all of those things, the Leone vibe. Um, I never got into, cause I, I was raised with like my grandfather loving like the John Wayne wis- Westerns and, and Gene Autry and Yippie Kaye, and all the singing along and, 
uh, you know, drifting along with the tumble and tumbleweeds and all of that shit. Sure. And I just wasn't a fan of that. It seems silly to me. I couldn't wrap my head around no. the filmmaking. Yeah, same. If, that, um, if yeah. that's all you've known. Everybody was then... too pretty. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, dude, these motherfuckers are way too pretty to be in the wild <laughs> west. So when I got to uh, experience uh, or, you know, yeah, when I got to familiarize myself with the gritty side of the wild west, I was all in. Um, and I thought that this was a direct lift from a lot of those um, uh, filmmaking, you know, processes. Just we with everybody kind of holed up in one area, back against the wall, yeah. and impending doom coming from outside. Um, you know, uh, a lot of those uh, tropes kind of get passed along from uh, Asian samurai films and, and kind of tossed back and forth as well. You see a lot sure. of overlap in some of these genres. And, um, yeah, Carpenter was glad to borrow a few, uh, and I was glad, happy to let him do it. Absolutely. Now, from there, we meet our protagonist. It's a cop on patrol. Starts out in the suburbs. His name is Ethan Bishop. He's played by a gentleman named Austin Stoker, who, from what I can tell, mostly did a lot of TV, not a whole lot else. Now, uh, I want to ask both of you if you had the same reaction. So there's this really interesting shot. It's a it's a tracking shot of him driving, <laughs> and you keep seeing these cars coming in, like, next to him and looking directly into camera. Uh, like, did that jump out to you guys yes. at all, or did you not pick up on that? Yes, definitely. I, uh, <laughs> I have it in my notes. I was like, because it had been a while since I've seen this movie, I didn't remember everything about it. I was like, so is she, like, part of the gang? Because there's this one woman in a white car who keeps pulling up, yeah. staring in, and then, <laughs> like, slows down and then pulls up, stares in, and I'm like, oh, no, she's not part of the movie at all. She's just someone who's driving and is like, why the hell is there a camera in here? <laughs> And that's exactly what it was. And, yeah, it's so funny. That was my exact train of thought as well. And I actually thought it was kind of effective. I'm like, oh, good technique, Carpenter. I'm like, I'm a little scared for this girl. Who is she? Like, this is a this is an interesting way to <laughs> introduce what's obviously going to be the gang. And then you find out, like, nope, just a looky-loo, wondering why there's a giant cage with a dude hanging out of the freeway, the passenger side of a window on the freeway. No bigs. <laughs> as you would. <laughs> Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. And uh, and and so she uh, and from there we find out that our protagonist is assigned to a new precinct. And of course, you know, in in the in the correct trope, it's his first day on the job. Right. Yeah, it's course. always their first day on the job in these things. And quickly after that, we actually meet our primary supporting player. It's a prisoner. His name is Napoleon Wilson. He's played by a gentleman by the name of Darwin Jostin, who also kind of from what I can tell, did a lot of TV. This is definitely his highest profile cinematic role. And he's probably what I think most people would consider, like, the most memorable character, right? He kind of has, like, a James Dean cool, but he's also, like, the, you know, serial killer or, you know, guy that's uh, killed a bunch of people and stuff like that. Something Prisoner. behind the eyes, right. Yeah, you know, but, like, so... And he's also got this sort of recurring line where anytime someone's introduced to him, he uh, asks him if they have a smoke. <laughs> yes. yes. Got a smoke. I saw this uh, would <laughs> pop up in Escape from New York. I was like, this is like proto uh, Pliskin. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I could see that. I, yeah. You do get the sense that if Kurt Russell, like if he had known Kurt Russell at the time, that he would totally be playing that role. Mm -hmm. And uh, he gets hit in the back of the head by a warden and, you know, escorted out in chains to this bus that's going to set up, you know, all of them coming together. But, of course, you know, beforehand, because he's the cool guy, uh, he's going to lasso the warden and uh, knock his ass down, getting him back for that little <laughs> clock in the head from earlier. 
And this kind of brings up a point that I also wanted to ask you, Ryan, we'll go ahead and start with you as far as the, so I think it's fair to say that like the two of them uh, being Napoleon and Ethan pretty much drive the entire story forward. What did you think of the characters and what did you think of the performances by the actors that played them? I thought they were great. I thought this was another example of John not biting off more than he could chew. I thought he kept everything pretty scaled back and maintainable for being his first film. And he put his attention towards things that mattered to him, like performances and uh, you know, the, the, the look of the film. I know he spent a lot of time in post-production, like we talked about. So um, I think that, you know, he kept everything kind of scaled back. It did feel like um, a, a bit of an exploit, 70s exploitation film, but that's what this was. That's what he was hired to make. He was given $100,000 yeah. to go make an exploitation film that he went out and took seriously. So it does have those exploitation vibes, uh, but you know, uh, with enough meat on the bone that he could use this as a calling card to kind of propel himself further. Now, I will add that I think some of these vibes and alleyways that he was going down to get these performances, I think they work better in the horror market. I think that he found his voice best in the 80s when he kind of leaned into that genre versus this, which, what would you call this? Would you Would, you, would this be like a thriller uh, to like you, an action thriller. An action thriller? Okay, yeah. yeah. Okay. So stepping away from that and getting into some of the horror vibes, I think that it just kind of his sensibilities, uh, that's the word I was looking for, kind of just feel m- more lived in. Maybe that's because that's how I'm familiar with him as a filmmaker, but I just saw him doing a lot of things here where it's like, oh, that was done better here or that was done better there, um, you know. But he was learning yeah. things, and as Absolutely. as was everybody, and I can't fault him for any of this. Uh, one last thing I'll add, and then I'll toss it over to Candace. Um, she, she's got probably more in, insight on this, but uh, uh, I, I, supposedly it was still in 1976, uh, kind of a big deal to have an African American lead um, to start okay. in your film. This is still the era. Uh, you know, we're coming on the heels of Shaft in '72. Uh, 71, of course, was uh, Sweet Sweetbacks, as we've discussed on the show. So, um, you know, 76, you're, you're filming this in 75 and pre-production 74, uh, you know, something along those lines. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I that was supposedly still kind of a big deal that you would have an African-American lead uh, in your nice. film. Um, you know, that was something that was still being done on the exploitation side of things. And uh, so not, not anything to... Uh, This is still kind of a a pinnacle in that regard. It's good stuff. Candace, how about you? What do you think? (laughs) Oh, um, I think that the the actual characters themselves, I I like the character character of Napoleon, like Napoleon Wilson, because it really sticks out in your mind. And then you kind of Mm -hmm. expect him to be a dirtbag because everybody, for the most part, in the beginning of the movie treats him like dirt. And he has this mythos about him that never really gets delved into. But then as you watch his actions and he actually treats the people around him respectfully until they disrespect him, you're like, this guy isn't a bad guy. I mean, he's on death row for killing people. (laughs) But then people are like, well, why'd you do it? And he never gives the right. He never answers it ever. He'll like give a different answer to each person. And so. Yeah. But to your point, but he does have a code, which I think kind of allows us to see him in a certain light. Yeah. It's like he's obviously a murderer and he never denies that, but you still empathize with him because he treats people with respect. And I like that. And as far as the performance of the actor, 
I mean, it's okay. <laughs> We're not going to win any Oscars here <laughs> right, in right. this movie yeah. for anybody. But for uh, Pope, um, or Bishop, sorry, Bishop, not Pope. Cardinal, <laughs> yeah. Bishop, Pope, whatever. <laughs> One of those things. Yeah. Um, One of those. It, I like the fact that, that, you know, he is black, but it's not a thing. It's not yeah. like... I think it gets mentioned once, and he's the one who mentions yep. it as nobody a joke. mentions it, and nobody. Right. Oh yeah, right at the top. Yeah, and, yeah. When she about the coffee joke. Yeah, and and then it never gets brought up again. So it's not. It's just. Yeah. I think is it normalizes the fact that you have your hero of the movie is black, and no one makes a big deal out of it, and therefore, it's not a thing anymore. And so I like that. That yeah. also kind of felt very night night of the living dead to me because that yeah. was the same case with that totally. film as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was just going to say that, yeah, there's kind of two interesting correlations to the films you guys mentioned where we've got uh, the black lead as there was in Night of the Living Dead. And again, much of the same way they didn't really make a big deal about that film at the time. Nope. And then also the Western element, because I think Napoleon is very much modeled after your traditional Western antihero, you know, where it's like, oh, that guy's no good and blah, blah, blah. But like he's got his code and it's a respectable code and he steps up and he defends the defenseless. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, you're going to find yourself endeared to that gentleman. Sure. By the way, one one thing I do want to say, and especially to you, Candace, because you said you had just watched They Live. Mm-hmm. Am I the only one that think Austin Stoker sounds a lot like Keith David? I could I could see like, that. The lead character, I, I kept hearing Keith David from They Live and... So many other great, wonderful I kept, things. I kept getting uh, vibes from the. <laughs> I kept getting vibes from the the secretary character, and then mm. Meg Foster from They Live because they look okay. very similar. The characters look in yeah. the way they act because they're very monotone and flat, which mm-hmm. you know was obviously Carpenter's choice for these char- for these female characters that they would be just very cool and collected. But yeah, mm-hmm. they're almost exactly the same character. <laughs> And almost the same actress. I was like, is that Meg Foster? No, that's not Meg Foster. It's like a Meg Foster light. Yeah. Uh, we, we like to call that a Kirkland brand around here. Kirkland brand Meg Foster. <laughs> we want Meg Foster, but we can't afford her. Got you, Sam. Yeah. <laughs> you the good value this version. This is Meg Foster. No we have Meg Foster at home. We have Meg Foster at home. <laughs> awesome. Now, from there, we're introduced to, I don't know if we ever actually learn his name. I just call him the dad in the thing. He probably, I'm sure he has a name. but And he's driving around with his daughter. And we get a quick shot where she points out some cops and he kind of, drives past and mentions about them not being trustworthy or something like that. So we get kind of a sense that he's like probably into some illicit shit or it's like not quite on the up and up, especially because he's like trying to find a payphone to call these guys. And yeah, did they ever explain kind of, that? No, no, they don't. And I think that's kind of one of the thing. There's a few aspects of this film that they don't really explain both to right. us as the audience, as well as to everyone else. And it all centers around here because by the end of it, Nobody in the precinct really knows what this dad did to piss off the gangsters. Like, right. it, it's never revealed to them, which really only heightens the altruism of them taking on this, uh, you know, means of protecting yeah, them from the they're gangsters. like, we don't know why we're protecting him. We just know that he needs to be protected. It's doing the right thing for the sake of doing the right thing, not because it's just you, you need a reason or yeah. you're getting a reward. Absolutely. Yeah. And of course, you know, that's 
that's respectable and that's going to endear us to our main characters. So good, good creative decision by Carpenter there. But, but I got, I, I mean, I want to chime in and say, I got some stuff to say about that, but I'm going to, okay. let's go a little bit further down the yellow brick road because <laughs> let's set up why he's like, what's going on here and, and what happens okay. in this next scene or two. And, Interesting. Uh, then I want to jump in and ask you guys some, some of I'm your opinions. For, I, I'm looking forward to it here. Carry so, on. From there, we get the cop arriving at the precinct. It's very quiet. He learns that it's actually in the process of being shut down. Uh, despite the fact that there's obvious violence being out of control, the old police chief is talking about how they get calls every 15 minutes still. And then from there, we're also introduced to this other cop. Now, he's the one who's on the bus escorting the criminals. His name is Officer Starker. This is a guy named Charles Cyphers who actually had a ton of roles. Like, of all the people in the film, he probably was the most successful. He, he had sort of a traditional arc where he started off doing a lot of television and then did make the leap to movies. He appeared in most of John Carpenter's work. He's worked with Hal Ashby. Yeah. Once he came on the screen, I was like, Sheriff Brackett. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, he, I mean, he's even been in major leagues. So, I mean, this is a guy that's definitely been around. And unlike some of the other people who just kind of show up for this and maybe one or two other movies and peace out. Now, uh, from there, we have also see Napoleon. And the cop that I just mentioned, Starker, kind of goes down and sits down and tries to understand him. And this is kind of a recurring theme, to your point from earlier, Candace, where everyone's just kind of talking to him, feel him out. And he... Never never calls out the reasons why, despite the fact that everyone wants to to know and to understand. Yeah, he's he's kind of like a joker. <laughs> he gives a different story every time about why did you kill those people? And he just he just yeah. gives a different story every time. You never know exactly why. Yeah, it's a little bit of that unreliable narrator, despite the fact he's not obviously the specific narrator. The other thing that I wanted to mention, uh, are you guys familiar with the editor of the film? John T. Chance? Oh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> Tell us, Ryan, who's John Chance? Uh, John Carpenter, right? Yes, sir. Yes, indeed it is. He's working under a pseudonym of, uh, uh, was it John Wayne's character in Rio Bravo? Is that correct? For, yes, yes. So it's actually a wink and a nod to the inspiration for this film. Is, uh, he called himself Laying John it on T. Thick. Chance. <laughs> Laying it on thick. A lot, of, uh, a lot of winks and nudges going on. Ah, uh, guys, uh, remember yeah. the thing that I'm doing with the stuff? Well, dude, I mean, Ryan, let's think of, I mean, think about it, though. He's young at this point, right? He's in his 20s still, I right. imagine. Yes. I mean, wasn't that what we all did in our 20s? Like, yes. wasn't like half of the films that we made in film school references to other films I that we loved? Absolutely. <laughs> I could not wait to wink and nudge people. Like, ah, have we all seen it? That we seen that movie, right? And also, I mean, not for nothing, but like, you have to understand, too, social, before social media... Uh, and when we all could gather like this and, and nerd out over shit, like there was no, you know, there was no Reddit subreddits. There was no Twitter groups and all of this nonsense. You know, there was no having Candace on our podcast. So, you know, to, to have an opportunity to, or a platform to, you know, find the, your other film nerd friends and kind of like, look what I did. See that? That's cool. Like that was kind of a nerdy thing back then. I would imagine, you know, you people know still as it do was it. for yeah. us in film school, people still do it, but I think it's like a little more. Uh, insider, you know, like you felt like you were a part of something, a wink and a nudge in your, your nerd friends. Yeah. Like that. It's also kind of funny because one of the things that John Carpenter had issue with was location because this is, so it was actually shot in 1975, released one year right. later, and they couldn't find an area of South Central Los Angeles that looked decrepit enough 
and dangerous enough that people would buy that it was gang ridden. So they actually like went to a junkyard and grabbed a bunch of like old couches and splintered wood and shit like that oh, wow. and like threw it in a yard and used that for a couple exteriors. So if anybody hasn't been out here, we have plenty of areas like that naturally now on their yeah. own. You certainly don't have to do any set dressing. No. Uh, it's unfortunate what 50 years will no, do to I, a place. I nice. completely bought it. I've never been to California at all, much less Los Angeles. So I just assumed this is what Los Angeles looks like. <laughs> it is now. It does now, unfortunately. Yes. <laughs> this is, um, uh, you know, this is a, what we've done here is a 1976 John Carpenter chic uh, aesthetic <laughs> that we're going for. <laughs> <laughs> this is what we call our home invasion aesthetic. Yeah. This, this week on House Hunters Los Angeles. <laughs> the Trap House. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. Uh, by the way, uh, I, I don't think I mentioned this at the top of the show. The, the very opening shot where the gangsters are coming in with that really hot overhead lighting, that was actually shot outside of principal photography. And it was a real gang hideout. I guess some somehow or another, some gangsters found out they were doing this or someone knew someone and they actually like used this South Central gang hideout and shot oh, that wow. opening scene where they get shot in there. Yeah, I, I was kind of wondering how this all kind of played into the timeline, because when I think of Los Angeles, I mean, my experience with Los Angeles gangs and, and even New York City, like the decline of those cities into... Um, you know, the, the 80s dystopian versions that we are familiar with from cinematic history, that all kind of happened in the late 70s, early 80s that brought us to things like The Warriors and, you know, uh, Escape from L.A. and all the or Escape from New York and all of these uh, dystopian versions of these cities. But, um, yeah, the early 70s, um, I don't know. It just seems like maybe so, uh, you know, that's kind of, I guess, post-Vietnam era. So you're kind of running on the heels of like, you know, pe people coming back from the war maybe and like. Sure. So, yeah, I was just trying to wrap my head around what L.A. looked like. I mean, we talk, we spoke about this on the episode about Duel as well, that mm -hmm. L.A. Yeah. is just, even in its newest versions, always looked like L.A., just always was brown and kind of desolate, yeah. even when it but, was, like, shiny and new. So. I always imagined yeah, L.A. Absolutely. before any, like, uh, gangs and stuff moved in, that it was, like, from the video game L.A. Noir, <laughs> yeah, that was like post World War II. I think yeah. it was the forties right. and fifties. Yeah, and like you everyone's got, the, got the, the Chinatown element the, of it as the well. Art Nouveau, like uh, yes. architecture and stuff like that. So somewhere in the sixties, it went from Chinatown to you know what we know from <laughs> Assault on Precinct Thirteen. Assault from Precinct Thirteen, right? <laughs> or Boys in Absolutely. the Hood, Absolutely. right? Yeah, right. Yeah, and then after that. Uh, we get what to me was easily the film's most shocking scene that I did not come oh, out of it. See, you had get, just came out of you nowhere had never seen this me, before, <laughs> never seen it before, and right? Yeah, same. it's because it's done so nonchalantly. So, there's the, the dad is driving with his daughter. I had to rewind it, yeah. We'll, we'll get to that in just a second. So, sure, we'll sure, just sure. it up for anybody listening. Dad and daughter driving through the hills, dad finds a payphone. Like I said, he's calling these people, we don't really know what he's up to. And the daughter hears an ice cream truck right up the street, right? Well, it just so happens that this ice cream truck has been hunted down by these roving gangs, right? Which we've actually been introduced to. I didn't mention this scene, but like they're introduced where the guy in the back with a giant rifle is just driving around, sticking it out of the back of a car and pointing it yeah, at people. Yeah, it's just LA. Right. And, <laughs> and yeah, I have a feeling that there might be a few more restrictions on uh, 
them having being able to do that because they obviously did that live and it didn't sound like anybody called the cops on them or anything. I feel like these days, you know, you get called a cops called on you in a heartbeat. But anyways, and so the girl goes up, gets an ice cream. It's a little tense. She gets it successfully, walks back. It's the wrong flavor. So she goes back and is like, hey, this is supposed to be a vanilla twist. The gangster shoots her right in the chest right there and then caps the ice cream truck driver. So like, like I said, guys, like this was, it was done so nonchalantly. Like it doesn't, it wasn't a big buildup or anything. Like it was just flat, 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 flat. And then boom. And the film actually does that a couple times. I, I respect when the film does that because it is a legitimate surprise. Sure. Uh, so Candace, you've actually seen the film several times. Ryan, I know this was your first. Did it, did that hit you the same way it hit me? Oh, the first time I watched it. Oh yeah, I almost fell out of my chair because you don't you, you don't see that ever in movies. Yeah. It's just like very casual child murder because he's he yeah. just he doesn't even like chasing her or anything. There's no menacing uh, audio, you know, atmosphere about it. He just she just walks over and says, "Oh, this was the wrong flavor." And without even looking at her, he just points the gun at her, shoots her, and then just, you know, wipes out the dude on the ground. And that was it. And they they weren't like you know high fiving yeah. each other. No one said anything. They were they just went about their day after that. It was nothing to them. Yeah, it was so shocking. Absolutely. <laughs> How about for you, Ryan? Because this is the first time you've seen it. Yeah, I had to rewind this because I, I you know you see the a little bit of the blood splatter um, on mm -hmm. the girl, and so my first take was that the, that was the ice cream truck driver that was being shot up. And he, she was getting splattered with his blood, oh, which I see. yeah, I think would be how we would expect to see a kid brought into a situation like that. If they were going to, you know, involve a child into a murder sequence, they would be as a spectator, an innocent spectator. We see the shock on their face or the trauma involved or whatever, but not be the victim. Um, yeah. So blunt. And uh, the other thing that got me about this scene and and others moving forward um, is how haunting silent bullets can be, you know, so often we're used sure. to seeing in a, a film like this, you know, blocka, 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 you know, the big loud <laughs> uh, in your face gunshots. And even later in the film, the shotgun, you know, and it's so you get this cause and effect. But the silent killer of the uh, silenced bullets, you know, um, to where sometimes you would just hear a very faint click. Uh, of the the trigger mechanism, uh, the hammer or whatever, and um, then see people drop dead, and uh, you know, so uh, this was one of those times where you know, to Candace's point, there was no pomp and circumstance, there was no big huge musical cues, just a, a click, a quick, and she drops down, and then yeah. you know, we see the the dad who gets worst father of the year award um, <laughs> on the phone in the phone booth, and then you know he glances over to see his child down. That's just seventies parents. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah. Again, we that's saw every this in Ryan O'Neill character <laughs> yeah. he's ever played. Right. Yeah, got a light pops. You know, he's like a cigarette. It's like, dude, you're twelve. Um, so shut up and light my cigarette, Dad. Okay. Yeah, th we saw some of that in Duel as well. That was just, yeah. gotta love the 70s. <laughs> but yeah, so then, you know, he confirms the child is dead, which confirms it for me as the audience as well. Because again, I was like, did that just, wait yeah, a minute. Because sure your mind is rejecting the possibility that this happened. Right? Yeah. yeah. So, and sure as shit, it did. Now, this is going to bring me to something I want to pass back to you uh, and Candace, Jason. And that okay. is... Um, now what we've got is a a father on the run 
who then seeks uh, out the police officer uh, because he, you know, exacts revenge and this and that. We'll get into that in a second. But we're, we're getting to a dual motivation for this gang to be at the police station. Now, was this scene in particular with the daughter being murdered, was that just to show an example of how brutal and vicious Street Thunder can be? By the way, don't Google Street Thunder. You're going to get... <laughs> <laughs> Very different results than what you're after. Uh, but are you? Do you think this is just a, you know an example to, to show their vicious behavior? Because we've already got their motivation to show up um, at the police station because of the murders of the gangs, and then they do the whole cholo ritual um, where they slit their uh, arms and, and do the bloodletting into the bowl. Okay, they're after these cops because their gang, their six of their gang were murdered uh, in cold blood. Um, so they're going to exact their revenge. Now we've got this father who is involved in this scene as well. Why? Is there a reason for that? Or or is it just to add another layer to the mix? Because then we never really find anything out about the father. I, I think that if he was going to be introduced and this scene plays out, um, if it's not just exploitative for shock value, then and it's going to have something to do with the, the agenda of these gang members, then... Um, I think we should have found out more about the dad and what he was up to and why he was on the phone in such a panic avoiding police officers in the first place, which would have added more gravitas to him having to go to a police station who he was obviously trying to avoid for whatever reason because he was into some shit. Thoughts, guys? I never uh, took it as the dad was in some shit. Like when he's having the conversation in the car, I think because the rest of the movie, the cops are shown as incompetent or lackadaisical in their work or downright cruel because there's like police brutality okay. in it. I, I, so when he's right. like, when he's um, cagey about her talking to the police, I think it's because people don't trust the police. I think is what it comes down to. I didn't think that the father himself was, you know, when the daughter was like, oh, Fred's dead, I thought they were talking about like maybe a dog or something. Mm. Yeah. So you're, so, okay. so you're saying that it's more of a commentary on the police. It's not. So it doesn't directly relate to the father. Yeah, I don't figure. think it does. That's how I read it anyway. And okay. then with the the daughter being murdered, I think you don't learn about the father because he's basically a MacGuffin. You know, he's like a, that's it. That's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah, he's pretty much just setting everything up, yeah. right? Because he's he's what gets them to the uh, police precinct. Yeah, I, I don't. But weren't they headed there anyway to exact revenge for their six homies? Hence the bloodletting and and for the six chant and stuff that they do at the top of the show. I don't think so. No, I mean, like I always read yeah. that is then you just saw this happening and then you see um, the the bloodletting and then becoming blood brothers. And then I think they were just going to go on a crime spree yeah. in honor of their fallen brothers. That's kind of okay. how I perceive it, because the only reason that they chase him to the jail. So here's the thing. Let's reverse engineer this. To get the gangsters to the jail, they need to Candace's point, a MacGuffin or a plot device. And so they need to chase somebody to the jail, and they're basically trying to get that one specific person. So what would inspire them to do that? Killing one of their own. How do we get right. them to kill one of their own? What if this person retaliates for some injustice they committed? And then it serves both functions. So to your point, the brutal killing does allow us to understand the nature of what we're dealing with, right? It's they're this, stone cold killers. Know, call it like 
100%, right? And then by him seeking retribution and, and exacting revenge, A, there's a little bit of a serotonin boost from him getting his revenge, and then B, from a plot device perspective, they chase him to the precinct. Okay. And then the rest of the time. Now, I do think that that could have been explored because there's this very brief, interesting scene with, I think it's the Nancy Loomis character, where she's like, they're just here for them. Why don't we give them up? Right. And and then that's when they're like, no, no, we don't know what he did, but we've got to and uh, we've got to protect him. And then that sets up another layer, which is that we now understand them to be virtuous and, you know, good guys. They're the good guys of the film. And it's another device that Carpenter uses to let us know that they are the good guys and to show us that they are the good guys. They're so good that they'll defend this guy merely for the sake of it being the right thing to do without knowing the circumstances. I agree. That's fair. I, I just So it, it's your take that the murder of their gang in the beginning of the show motivates the crime spree, which then kills the daughter, which then motivates the father's exacting revenge, which then motivates the standoff at the jail that takes us to the jail. Yes. It's that, yeah, that's he, the he gets his revenge and then now they're getting trying okay. to get revenge back on him. You Got know, it's, it. a, it's a revenge crisscross. Yeah, crisscross. <laughs> I um for whatever reason I just thought that they were headed to that jail already to go get you know kill them some police officers and that was the revenge. So as if yeah. they were going there already and you're going to bring this father into the mix and murder his daughter and like do that whole scene what's his deal? Like I should get a little more backstory on that. If, sure. Cause you've now incorporated a double, a double motivation. But yeah, uh, but the thing is, and I think the reason he avoids that is because it. it's not supposed to be about the father. Like yeah. you're not supposed to be invested in him. Like, like say, sure. he's just a MacGuffin. Fuck that guy. He's just setting everyone else up. Don't worry about it. Give him, give him that father of the year award and move on. So now from there, we finally get everyone coming together, which by the way, I thought was hysterical that the, the chief is like hammering like a wooden sign into the yard. Like, go down. <laughs> like I don't know. It reminded me of like the Simpsons, like elephant rides, $2 or something. right? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we've got the other gangsters or criminals rather, let's call them uh, because they're not part of the gang and they're being bust in. And one of them, the device that they come up with, that's admittedly a little clunky, but uh, you know, uh, I've seen worse is uh, the one guy is sick. And so they basically like, oh, this 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 prisoner is going to lose it. We got to we got to pull over and uh, go to the next nearest precinct and treat him. Now, if I'm remembering correctly, either of you can take this one. If you know, isn't this the exact setup of like a, a movie from the 90s? I want to say either like, yes, that's what I had. <laughs> yeah. either Con Air or The Fugitive were my two guesses. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's Con Air. Yeah, that's what okay. I was thinking. So, of. yeah. So. <laughs> Yeah, okay, so they just straight Jack Carpenter for that setup then. That's pretty cool. <laughs> and, yeah, so they do effectively get off. They go to the jail cell that the rest of the movie or the precinct that the rest of the movie is going to take place in. And they put the criminals in the jail cells. We've got the dad who, you know, he ends up finding the gangsters. And after a brief shootout, he shoots the one gangster dead, the crazy-eyed guy, and then runs his ass away from the rest of the gang that is trying to exact their revenge and collapses just inside of the local jail. So, Candace, I'll start with you on this question, okay? We're at about the 45-minute point. And this is halfway through the film. So in essence, Carpenter spends half of his action thriller setting it up and bringing them all together. Mm -hmm. This would generally be done much earlier in the film the way that like would, 
you know, a traditional structure would dictate. Do you think this had any effect on the film? Did it work for or against it or didn't really change anything for you? I think it kind of works against it. This movie can be pretty slow. Like there is a long mm. wait. Like if you're watching this movie and you're expecting an action movie, there's a long wait before any action actually happens. <laughs> right. Like it, it keeps me involved because I just like the set pieces I just like the style of the movie, the atmosphere of it. And so that keeps me involved. But I wouldn't say it's for everyone. I feel like most people would be like, OK, let's just get to it. <laughs> yeah. How about yeah. You, Ryan? Yeah. Uh, I have that literally explicitly in my notes here. Halfway in with setup, still waiting. And um, <laughs> yeah, I uh, I do think that something, you know, when I went back afterwards and started reading about this film and realized that it was inspired so much by classic westerns that's very much a western trope and it's something that i think i even touched on very briefly uh when i talked about the film old henry uh recently so oh yeah yeah, um, yeah. very much the same type deal five minute review plug check out our five minute reviews if you haven't right right so you get (laughs) um you know so much uh almost two acts of setup and then yeah. that all builds to like a third act standoff shootout kind of thing. Um, sure. You know, you might have a little bit in the beginning, um, usually with a Western to kind of show how bad the bad guys are and tee up. And that's exactly what this did. It set up how bad the bad guys were and then stalled out for the entire second act that led into a insanely intense, great third act um, for what it was. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. And I, and I tend to agree with you guys. I, I think that, you know, look, just because a device or a plot point or a creative decision is a reference to something or modeled after something doesn't mean it automatically works, no. right? Like you can take this thing that people did. And because the other thing too is, you know, the by definition, a Western is differently paced than an action thriller, right? So you 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 set this thing up where it's like roving gangs and guns and all of this. You know, you expect a certain film And I suppose on the one hand, you know, kind of playing against expectations is always admirable. The fact that they went out of their way to, you know, introduce silencers uh, kind of gives it a different flavor, even though I understand that's probably a plot device to to keep the cops from knowing where they're at. It does sort of add this additional layer with the way that they're able to progress the story. But I do think that 45 minutes is kind of a long time to bring everything together. Carpenter's actually very upfront about the fact that if he had to do this again, he would have sped it up. Or rather, he would have had a stern talking to with Mr. John T. Chance (laughs) about speeding up his film. (laughs) Um, He does recognize. But the other thing that he mentions, too, is it's like, look. You know, when, you, when you're given $100,000 to make a movie, which, by the way, uh, I did the math. It's about half a million dollars in 2022 money. So for all intents and purposes, the film was made for half a million dollars. There's a number of sort of tricks that you need to employ to pull it off. And one sure. of them is, unfortunately, we kind of need to take as long as possible on a lot of these scenes because I've got 90 minutes to fill. Yeah. It's one thing when it's your student film. Like, Dark Star doesn't need to hit 90 minutes because it doesn't have a distribution deal, right? But at the time, based on theatrical distribution deals and all of that, your film had to be a minimum of 90 minutes long. And so, you know, there's a there's a few things that he did to hit hit that mark that unfortunately came at the expense of slowing the film down a little yeah. bit. Yeah, I mean, because you well, can't, and, and it's, then, if it's only a half a million budget, you can't just blow it all in the first act. The special effects right. cost a lot of money. <laughs> you got to pace yourself. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, you know, and what you have in Westerns and in this film in particular is, you know, two 
groups of people going against each other. Um, so it becomes this all or nothing standoff where, you know, when you shift into horror, maybe one of the reasons why, you know, John Carpenter's elements work more in that vein is now you can start to like where horror excels is picking people off one by one. Yeah. It's the isolation, sure. the fear of being alone in the woods. And you get these series of vignettes almost of each person or even, you know, couples as it tends to be having sex in the woods or doing something that they're not smoking reefer or something being picked sure. off by um, this indomitable force of nature, um, you know, one by one. And so that leads us to a final standoff of, Jamie Lee Curtis versus Michael Myers or something along those lines. But with mm -hmm. this, um, that wouldn't make any sense. You've got a group of people in a jail all pinned down. Um, you know, the, this is all going to build towards a grand standoff. And, and uh, th that's, a, that's a very Western mindset. Very rarely do you see Westerns where people go off by themselves and get picked off alone. You've got the Wild Bunch or you've got Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. You've got... You know, these grand standoffs at the end, these big shootouts in the street, you know, and, and uh, everything kind of built 310 to Yuma, you know, all these kinds of sure. films. But um, this is kind of that. Um, I will also say that this film uh, was done maybe a little better. Um, Candace, I don't know if you've seen this, but the uh, the TV series Fargo. I have not um, watched it. It's on my to watch list, but I haven't seen it yet. Jason, do you, do you remember the prison scene in, in the second season of Fargo where Nick Offerman gets wasted and goes to negotiate with these the people outside? Uh, spoilers. I can't say that I do, man. I wanted to say yes. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you got you to keep it's that It's not up, really right? a spoiler, but yeah. There's not, like a, there's not like a 12-year like grace period, like, okay, it's been out long enough. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, we're going back to like 2015, but uh, yeah. <laughs> season two of Fargo um, uh, has a, a very similar... Um, I, I think two or three episode run that mimics this movie to a, to a T and does it very, very well. Interesting. And, and, and so I started thinking about that. And one of the reasons is I do believe one of the things, you know, on this topic about like the stalled out middle act, I feel like there's yeah. a lot of like sit down contemplative conversations going on in this, you know, in the, the bulk of this film. Um, where people are talking about their past and reminiscing about things and giving exposition dumps. Yeah, and, usually this um, is the type of the time. A lot of regret. The time in the film when they start building the characters. Because, like, you've got your first So they act, took their foot off Yeah, the you gas. got your introduction with the characters, and then the second act, you're going to, like, beef up the characters and build the relationships. Right. Yeah, but Ryan, I mean, to, but in, in, in the film's defense, I think a large part of that was dictated by the budget. Because, first of all, I mean, he has, like, we'll get into just a minute, but there's a very large shootout that occurs that I know took up, I'm sure, a ton of their their budget. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. You know? So it's just, I think it's also one of these things where it's like, look, it, it, dude, if you want to keep me stocked in fuel, I'll go pedal to the metal all the way. But, like, I'm sitting here on a quarter tank and can't afford to refill it, so I got to moderate this bitch, you know? No, but, uh, but I think there are ways that you could have spaced out some of the intensity so that it's not just like an hour or 45 minutes of a bunch of stalled out conversation leading up to a grand standoff. There might have been some things that are, for example, um, you know, when the gang members disappear uh, towards the, the back end of the second act, um, they are, you know, making this charge in towards the the prison and they're they're standing behind their cars and pushing their cars in a neutral yeah. They're keeping, you know, giving some level of intensity. And then all of a sudden when they check the windows, cars are back to normal, but dead, but all the dead bodies are cleaned up. Everything's gone. What's going on? Like little things like that don't cost a dime, 
but make the viewer, me as the viewer, kind of sit up like, okay, what's going on now versus just all these stalled out conversations over a lit cigarette in a jail cell, you know? Okay, well, let me ask you about this real quick, both of your guys' take, because in the film, we've got Starker on the phone, and then the line goes dead, okay? And then, (laughs) so, I'm going to ask you a specific question, and then generally, but, like, for some reason, there's, so, this film has very stylized dialogue in a (laughs) lot of it. And, Ryan, this is kind of what you're referring to, okay? Which is also funny, because last, not last week, but two weeks ago on our last episode, we did Sweet Smell of Success, which is nothing but stylized dialogue the entire time. Like for 90 minutes straight, nothing no, nothing but stylized dialogue. Now, there's a line in particular that I didn't get at all, and if you guys understand what this means, or maybe I misheard it, but the phone goes out, and Officer Starker looks at the chief and goes, Officer, you run this precinct like chicken night in Turkey. No, I didn't get that either. And I saw that. I get that and I, I, I've spent like 20 minutes. Oh, I'm so glad like, you I am caught obsessed that. obsessed with trying to figure out what he even means. Aside from the chicken turkey connection, I have no idea what this line of dialogue is referring to. I have to. no idea. None yeah. whatsoever. And to the point that I'm fascinated with breaking it down to figure out what the hell he meant. I, and so I, and so that's kind I of I definitely reflective. caught the line. Yeah, I caught the line, yeah, but and so no, I could not explain to you the meaning of it. <laughs> And and so that's it's funny that you bring this up right now, Ryan, because I, I did kind of want to. It sounds like Ryan, we understand what you thought, but Candace, what did you think of, like I said, the stylized dialogue that's in the script? Well, it's very John Carpenter dialogue. Like he always, people yeah. don't really talk like that in real life. Like, but it makes for great one-liners. Like you, yeah. you never forget <laughs> some lines, you know. But do you so? But in general, I mean, do you like because there's kind of two schools of thought, right? There's people who are like, "Dude, check your brain. It's fun." You know, the the Snake Plissken one-liners, or really any of Kurt Russell's one-liners in all the John Carpenter movies, mm-hmm. right? Whereas there's other people who would say, "Look, you know, this isn't how people talk." To your point, it takes me out of the film when people talk in a way that doesn't reflect how people really talk. So like where do you I'm definitely in the former. Like I like stylized dialogue if it matches the atmosphere of the rest of the movie. And it it'd be different if this was, you know, a gritty urban film set in Los Angeles and everybody's speaking like Elizabethan English. Like that'd be different. (laughs) But you know, they're talking like they're all toughs who've seen some shit. And it makes sense for the characters and it makes sense for the environment. And so you just kind of buy into it. Yeah, I think it, I think it fits the aesthetic. Yeah, same. And then from there, we're also introduced to the. I believe she's a receptionist. This is Lee. Um, she's played by a woman by the name of Lori Zimmer, who, from what I can tell, did but not Nick Foster. And then, <laughs> <laughs> and then there's Julie, who's played by Nancy Loomis, who's been in it's the first Annie three Halloween movies and The Fog, and yeah. And uh, obviously, but I don't, it doesn't seem like she's really done too much outside of the Carpenter films that she appeared in. And so, and then from there, yeah, that's where we get this sort of big, okay, you know, the the criminals are advancing. You know, the the one cop who's there, who's obviously just set up to be the first guy to die because he has one line of dialogue prior to that. They, he marches out to go see what's going on, gets shot up by all the criminals. Gets shot up, too. And then, it's not like a pew. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. He's done it's so. like. <laughs> not quite RoboCop status, but <laughs> yeah. almost there. 
<laughs> and yeah, so the well, so well, I guess to differentiate, we've got the gangsters who are the people who are actively attacking them, and then we have the criminals who were brought to the to the jail, and they kind of end up being the good guys, or at least on the side of the good guys. So I'll try to make sure I'm referring to them appropriately. But we've got the gangsters who attack all of the cops and the criminals, two of whom survive, one of which is Napoleon. The other guy is Wells, a gentleman by the name of Tony Burton. And he's actually done a lot of roles, but everyone is going to know him most famously as the corner man from Rocky. He was Rocky's corner man in all of the films. Oh, nice. I didn't realize yeah. that. <laughs> and he was actually, he was a boxer before uh, he was an actor Damn. as well. One of those guys. Yeah, it's quite interesting because uh, Rocky won Best Picture this year. Uh, ah, the Oscars. There you go. Man, <laughs> yeah. we got to play that Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon game. We'd be good at that. This is uh, the year that Rocky won over all the president's men. It was uh, highly controversial. So he oh, went wow. from Rocky's Corner Man to this film. Good job. There you go. Or vice versa. <laughs> yeah, and they're, um, you know, the Napoleon and Wells are returned to their cells before we get the dozens of gangsters that show up and shoot up the precinct. It's interesting to note because apparently to hear it from Carpenter, you didn't really have a lot of huge shootouts in cinema up to this point, right? It wasn't like... The 80s and 90s didn't happen where these action filmmakers just started, like, going crazy with their shootouts and, you know, John Woo and mm-hmm. uh, uh, who's the guy who made El Mariachi? I forget his Robert name Rodriguez. right now. Robert Rodriguez. Rodriguez, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so, you know, we we see these films from these guys in the late 80s and early 90s, and I think it's maybe easy to just sort of assume that that was something that Hollywood had been doing for a while. But apparently this was one of the larger shootouts that had appeared in film up to this point. And another little interesting wrinkle, by the way, they couldn't afford candy glass. Uh, first of all, I didn't know candy glass was more expensive than regular huh. glass, but apparently it is. Oh, wow. And they couldn't afford candy glass, so they bought all regular glass <laughs> shit. and shot the shit out of regular glass. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> Which Fuck I it. can't imagine they had insurance for. <laughs> and so, yeah, so uh, they obviously shoot up the place, and our boy Ethan says, you know what, we need uh, some extra manpower. So he goes back, releases Napoleon and Wells, the two criminals, gives Napoleon a shotgun, and they all have a nice old-fashioned shootout. The gangsters break in. Julie, unfortunately, dies. And Ethan and Napoleon kind of, you know, bond over their experience doing this. Another really interesting uh, wrinkle that I wanted to point out real quick. So this was shot at Venice Jail. As in Venice Beach. I saw that. And yeah, and apparently it was at the time, I don't know if it's still active. The the jail has been closed down forever, but it was a very popular location for filming. So they basically left it open and they would rent it out to the studios. The problem for Carpenter is that he was filming it in downtown L.A., so the thing, uh, you know, as as Candace and anyone else who hasn't been to L.A., there's downtown L.A. that feels like a downtown metropolitan area. And then you have Venice Beach that feels exactly like a beachside county. So because of that, you'll notice that all throughout the film, any exteriors of the jail are shot super tight because if he was to go any further, you would see like a, a beach and palm trees <laughs> and you would not believe that we were in South <laughs> Kind of like in LA. Halloween. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> just throw some leaves on the ground. That's right. <laughs> I forgot about that. I forgot about that. Yeah, so uh, so you'll notice that all of the exteriors of the of, of it are shot super tight. And we kind of touched on the score a little bit at the top, but, you know, Candace, 
where do you think that his so I think there's a couple a handful of like really famous John Carpenter themes right arguably the most is Halloween where do you think this sort of uh, scales and the rank of like Carpenter themes towards the top toward the bottom middle where I think it's towards the top like like I said I just watched Mm -hmm. they live last week and that's got a good score, but it kind of is the same three notes over and over again, and it gets kind of old. <laughs> and it does, it's much simpler than this, so I would put that middling. I would actually rank this above They Live as far as scores go. I was like, I can see why nice. someone would want to own this on vinyl, like a collector's edition on vinyl yeah. and listen to this, because it's a. I think it's a great score. And apparently uh, one of the things that Carpenter talks about is how synths at the time were a lot more demanding than they are now right so apparently it wasn't one of these things where there's just all these sound banks installed like he was actually talking about the fact that any time he would do a synth score he would have to retune the synthesizer which is a concept i really don't even understand because how do you tune a synthesizer it's like you have strings that are getting used and relaxed and then you got to tighten them back up again like how does that work yeah so i'm thinking that maybe it was something where you had to program like tell the keyboard like hey this you had to find an a on the sound spectrum and then tell the keyboard like program that like this is a maybe it's something like that yeah so very different than the synthesizers that we know at be this like day and age. back in maybe my day no- knobs and dials <laughs> yeah knobs and dials maybe kind of like could as be. you start to tune it you could you know kind of like a a wah-wah kind of like a i don't know yeah by the way if anybody listening knows <laughs> what an old synthesizer was and how you tune it please call in or write to us esotericacinema at gmail.com You've got the we've got the uh, hotline at the top of the show. We would love to know how you tune a synthesizer. And, and, I mean, until you do, we're just going to keep guessing um, <laughs> for the next 40, 45 <laughs> minutes or so. <laughs> Back in my day, so. we had to tune our synthesizers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Out mm-hmm. uh, my, I fried mean, mashed potatoes. My television had a pull start on it when I was a kid. It was fantastic. <laughs> Gas powered television. Um, yeah. <laughs> and back then, you could steal cable. You'd give the cable guy $50. <laughs> Had a mule on a hitch and walk around in circles. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Now, from there, we've also got... So the, so everyone in the jail is like, okay, we're, we're trapped inside. We've got to get out. It's down to Napoleon and Wells to draw straws because they come up with this scheme to basically have one of them escape through the sewage line and, you know, steal a car and go run off and, and get help or what have you. Now, this is also I was referring to the stylized dialogue from earlier. This is one of actually my favorite lines where Wells is talking to the group and he's like, I've got a plan. It's called Save Ass. <laughs> <laughs> I love that line so much. It's <laughs> like my favorite line from the entire thing. And, uh, and but then also like. What was with them playing potatoes to draw straws? I don't what the know hell what is that, that? Was. Do you guys know this nope. as a game? Never heard of potatoes. It's a prison thing. Ryan, you're <laughs> I don't know. Ryan, is this some like old old southern thing, potatoes? First off, fuck you for coming to me. <laughs> Let's start there. Old man um, Withers, uh can you shed some light? Well, you know, it's a it, it reminds me a lot of chick, chicken night and turkey, Jason. <laughs> 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 so that was just kind of a silly thing that they do. Of course, Wells ends up drawing the short 
straw or whatever the potatoes equivalent is of drawing the short straw. And so he has to go out. He effectively makes it out. And as a matter of fact, is even able to sneak in and steal a car. The gangsters don't realize until it's too late that he's driving off. And it seems like, you know, he's going to make it. But then... Uh, apparently, in good old carpenter fashion, dudes in the back. How long? Dudes and in the how back. How long was he back there? That's what I want to know. <laughs> that is, dude. That is the long game. That is like, that is some stakeout shit. That's the like patient ninja stuff, dude, for sure. Committed to the bit. Hey, so real quick, don't sewers work in such a fashion that he could have just kept going? Well, yeah, they make they make that like, comment though, because they're like, if you head in the other direction, you can just leave. Oh, yeah. got it. Yeah, they do. But, you know. So what was the point yes, of him getting right. in the car? To save yeah, everyone else, right? Yeah, he was going to go right? drive to where the phone works and call for help. Oh, but he could have kept going through the sewers to where phone works. Oh, I got you. Uh, that's oh, my point. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. No, there's there's only one payphone in the entire yeah. city at this point. Yeah. It's Los I'm, Angeles. It's, it's, it's in small. this vacant lot. Son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've it's seen the direct it line. It's the call box line. It just goes direct to the to the jail. Uh, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. I just felt like... Why stop there? Just keep going. Like you get on the other side of the enemy lines, and um, and then you could be safe and, and get you know. <laughs> I call have for help. no idea. Well, as John Ford famously said about Stagecoach, if I did that, I wouldn't have a movie. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> and now a quick word from our sponsor. In today's rental housing market, it can be a challenge to fulfill your gang-related needs. Between the competitive pricing and overfunded police departments, your bills can pile up faster than the dead bodies. It's become harder and harder out there for a pimp. Hi, I'm Tony Three Toes Johnson. When I was a kid, I had 0% interest in doing a 30-year bid upstate. But my time in solitary helped me realize nobody should have to go through this housing crisis alone. Introducing Airbnbs in the Trap, the luxury rental trap house service to accommodate all of your gangster-ass needs. Whether you're cutting blow or moving hoes, Airbnbs in the Trap covers every detail at the crib so you can focus on what matters in the streets. Come along as I give you a quick guided tour. The first thing you'll notice is everything starts with location. Each trap house is selected in neighborhoods with many exit routes for quick getaways. And none of our houses have landscaping, so you'll have plenty of accessible parking right there in Excuse the front yard. Me. Are all these cars gonna be here long? I was just walking my dog and noticed you were parked on my lawn, and I... <laughs> I think you should keep quiet and get back in the house. What did I tell you? <sighs> Snitches get stitches. And they do. Now go on about your business. I'm sorry. That's right, bitch. <clears throat> Exhale and leave your worries at the door as you take advantage of our luxury amenities. Like our personal chef, Marco, giving daily cooking classes to your crew, assuring mess so clean, you'll keep all your teeth. Oh, here he is now. Chef, how's the cooking class coming along? Good, good. We've got a great class today. We're working on a recipe I learned from a friend that did time in federal with Martha Stewart. Sounds fantastic. What's your favorite part about working here at the Trap House? Safety first. Only had two fires, but only three injuries. Injuries. Ha <laughs> Classically trained. And speaking of training, keep your stable of hoes in check with our bottom bitch motivational speaking seminars. Let's listen into one of our bitches now. And remember, wipe front to back to allow for an upsell on a discounted second round. 
Hey there, how are the hoes coming along? Fantastic. That's what we like to hear. Can you maybe share a little bit about what you've been working on? Well, for the fall season, we'll be offering a pumpkin spice douche rinse. It's got the perfect notes of cinnamon and nutmeg. Mmm, don't you just love fall? It's like my dick's wearing a cozy flannel drinking hot chocolate. So whether it's our weekend community gun swap or nightly dead body disposal, Airbnbs in the Trap has everything you need to take you from Sleazy Street to Easy Street. Airbnbs in the Trap. It's not a trap house, it's a trap home. Credit card's not accepted, payment by unmarked cash only. And now back to the show. Now from there... We've got four people left, right? It's Ethan, Napoleon, and then we've got the dad character as well as Lee. And they basically come up with their final plan, which is that they're going to lure the gangsters into the hallway, and then they're going to rig an explosive that they're going to shoot. Can I bring something up about these explosives? It's acetylene tanks. Please. And acetylene tanks. They're, acetylene yeah, they're tanks. used for like welding. I don't know what that is. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. And yeah. Uh, it, when they found these crates with these acetylene tanks in them, they have evidence on them. And I'm like, what fucking crime involved acetylene tanks that these are evidence? <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I want to know that story. <laughs> Absolutely. That's hilarious. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, he's uh, they, they come up with a scheme. They're going to blow it up, and they've also got this, like, sort of movable wall that they place on a furniture dolly, which, by the way, guys, everyone should have a furniture dolly in their house. Those things are so fantastic. You can use them for a million different things, including setting up a wall if you're going to scheme on some gangsters. And we also see that there's these cops that are on patrol. I know we didn't really mention this because it's kind of a throwaway, but there's the whole sort of very threadbare subplot about the cops that are on patrol. And they're like, ah, we just don't see the gangsters. There's no gangsters. You keep telling us there's gangsters. Yeah, they can't get backup because, you know, it's a busy Saturday night. So backups elsewhere and they can't get uh, aerial patrol. They can't get helicopters. That's right. They keep trying to get the copter. We need a copter. Like, ah, negative. See what happens when you defund the police, guys? (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. And uh, so, you know, that's just kind of a... But there is... It does kind of set up the moment that allows the cops to finally figure out what's going on and where and kind of come rushing in at the end. We'll get there in just a sec because we've got, like I said, Ethan and Napoleon, Lee and the dad, and... They actually do effectively sort of uh, pull this off. And at the same time that this is happening, that's where the cops stop and very coincidentally happen to be just underneath a phone tech who has been shot or stabbed and he's dripping (laughs) blood on their car. Very urban legend. Which was kind (laughs) of clunky, but, you know, again, we'll, we'll allow for it. And... This, and so getting back to the jail, so the gangsters, they kind of make their final push through the hallway. They're pushing Ethan, Napoleon, everyone back, back, back. When they finally have everybody in the hallway, they shoot the bomb, and it explodes. And this sets up what I think is a really great hero shot. I thought this was an awesome, awesome, almost final shot where you've got this, like, heavy, heavy smoke through the hallway and, like, the camera pushes in. And then as it sort of dissipates away, it reveals, like, our three main heroes. You know, uh, yeah, and and just standing there in, like, that awesome hero pose. And, you know, it seems to be something that genre filmmakers do. And kind of like the stylized dialogue, right? Like, I dig it. I love the hero shot in Dead Alive. I love the hero shot in this one. Hero shots are dope when you're in that genre. 
And then from there, we're, we're pretty much out. We've got Ethan, who says something to make Lee leave so that we can get this final shot of Ethan and Napoleon together. And, you know, they kind of share a laugh about their experience and walk off together and got sort of a, a nice end credits that wraps it up in a, a very but their sort lives, of their lives are still ruined. Everyone. Like the dad still lost his daughter. She's she's not coming back. <laughs> Napoleon is, <laughs> is still on death row. This doesn't he's not like immediately absolved of his past crimes because he helped out in this one situation. <laughs> like, like it's, That's actually yeah. a good point. That's actually a good point. Story wise, it does kind of betray the like fuzzy feeling that you get at the end after the that sort of stuff. Like because I don't know, to me, it kind of felt like a, it was almost like a the way that certain TV episodes will wrap up, you know, like a dragnet or something. I was like, wow, wasn't that a crazy yeah. thing? Yeah. Well, let's go. buddy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Slap on the back. It freeze was great, frame, though, because right? they're like, walking out. He's like, I will walk. He's like, Do not put him in chains. I will walk him out myself. And then you see them walking and yeah. then the score kicks in and I'm like, yeah, that's cool as hell. <laughs> Agreed. And that wraps up our experience with Assault on Precinct 13. So, yeah. Now, uh, real quick, we're going to go ahead and get into our final segments here. Uh, do you just want to leave a note for everyone? If you enjoy the show, please don't forget to give us that sub or leave a review. We have like nine reviews on like iTunes, which for being around for three years, uh, help us change that sub, leave us a review. And from there, we're going to kick off our three adjectives feature. Ryan, why don't you go ahead and give our audience your three adjectives to describe your experience with Assault on Precinct 13? Well, my first two kind of play off each other, um, starting with textbook. I felt like this was more grounded than a film like Dark Star. I thought that, uh, you know, John Carpenter kind of saw the tools he had in his toolbox and just went and got them and made, you know, cobbled something together that was the best version without, you know, he, he set the bar low and, and made a really good version of that thing. Um, with that said, I'll follow it up with my second, which is ambitious. Um, not as a film, but as filmmakers. I thought that they did a lot of ambitious things. I thought, uh, as I stated in the, in the top of the show, that, uh, you know, John Carpenter just went in and got his hands dirty. He said, fuck it, we'll figure it out. And, and um, so he never really let the I don't know excuse stop him. He said, well, let's learn, you know, and how do I edit? Show me what, what that looks like and whatever. So, um, you know, he, he hired the best people he could afford and then, you know, brought his friends in and then he just kind of did the rest himself. The music being the biggest example of that. So, mm -hmm. um, the last is take that crones, which, uh, you know, for being an early <laughs> version of, uh, you know, these two Titan, uh, you know, Titans of horror, Cronenberg and, Carpenter, now we've looked at their first films, um, Assault on Precinct 13 and The Brood, and I think this was a better film. If I was going to take two of the uh, Hall of Fame horror filmmakers, Cronenberg uh, and Carpenter, and compare their two first films, I think this is the better of the two, personally. Now, one could argue this isn't a horror film, but um, still, I thought this was a better made movie. I enjoyed it more. I was more engaged. I thought the performances were great, and um, yeah. You're gonna go Excellent. at my boy Cronenberg like that. <laughs> I, well, this is the this is better than the brood. He's my boy too. Yeah, but no. To be honest, like we do love. So we actually covered the brood in season two, right? Last year. Yep. 
Yeah. Absolutely. And yeah, we 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 liked the elements, but it was like I'll say this often. One of the one of our like main comments about certain filmmakers' early work is that it feels like his demo mm-hmm. tape. Well, yeah. Right? It's like it's it's like a great band's demo tape where it's like, right. look, the production's shoddy, the songwriting could be better, but like there's some serious potential here. I love the spirit of what you're doing, and I can't wait to see your better examples of this down yeah. the road. Well, it was funny because I was just talking about the brood yesterday. On a bonus episode. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so it's funny okay. that the brood gets brought up again. It's not really a Cronenberg yeah. that's talked about a whole lot. Yeah. And look, it does have a great third act, don't get me wrong, but uh, you know, it's uh it's a feature film and not a short film. Yeah. So well yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh Candace, let's go ahead and get your three adjectives. Okay. My first one is anti cop. Because I thought, no, this movie could not get remade today because, you know, uh feelings about the police aren't you know, uh, favorable to say the least. Sure. But when you really watch this movie, the cops aren't the heroes. Like they're Definitely. not, they're not even sure. the coolest people in the movie. And majority of the cops in this film are, you know, there's police brutality against prisoners and chains. Like they're assholes Yep. and they can't do their jobs. <laughs> <laughs> like there's a general distrust for the police. Like, why aren't they here? Why aren't they helping us? So yeah, it's a surprisingly yeah. anti-cop movie or at least not, you know, uh, definitely not uh, standing the thin blue line. They're they're definitely not talking about how the police are going to save us and everything's going to be hunky dory. I I love the uh, the line too, and uh, they're going out to hotwire the car, and the cop has to admit I I can't do that. I'm a cop, <laughs> you know. Like I don't know, I yeah. don't even know how to do that. <laughs> yeah. He's clueless how to. Yeah. Every step e- of the way, even in the most minuscule thing, you would think a cop would know how to do that. Is like yeah, yeah, sure. I'm clueless. And he was always out of ideas. And then my second word is gritty. Because this movie, uh, you know, it's got those uh, brown and beige hues to it. And it's mm-hmm. you said that they had to take stuff from junkyards to make it appear more dilapidated than it actually was. But it really uh, builds the atmosphere of it. Everybody looks like they could use a shower, <laughs> especially by the end of it. And then to go in with that is my third word, which is urban. Because it is definitely mm-hmm. a urban, gritty movie. Where it's like a yeah. ultra violent gangs and, you know, you have to help yourselves. And this uh, this is a no man's land. The police don't even come here. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. And I, that's kind of a theme in a lot of his movies, would you say, right? Yeah, I, I definitely. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And then so this is always what sucks. I always let Ryan go first. And like a third of the time, he's going to steal at least one of my adjectives. So. Ah. I'm going to move two to number one with ambitious for the same reasons you mentioned, Ryan. Like this was definitely it's not that he bit off more than he could chew, but you get the sense that he bit off as much as his mouth would allow. No more, no less. You know, right. At the same time, it's an economic film. That's my second adjective is economic. And just the way that he was able to stretch that budget while also still working on a 35 millimeter. I mean, let's not forget that 35 millimeter stock is going to eat up a huge part of that budget. Right. So there's that, there's that too. So, you know, that's that much less money available for like actual production, which is probably why he ended up having to sacrifice a salary. And from there, I've also got palatable. Now here's the thing about a film like this. Okay. Is it could very easily lean into the exploitation tropes to a much heavier degree, right? This is like when I look at this film, I don't I don't I don't see a true exploitation film, which I believe is partly due to the filmmaking abilities of John Carpenter, 
But yep. I see like a Hollywood version of an exploitation film, right? And so again, that's going to open up our net. There's a lot of people that just can't get into schlocky B-grade exploitation films for a number of reasons. And whether it's horror or black exploitation or any of the different genres that encompass that, Russ Myers, what have you. I think this is something where it's like, hey, if you like the idea, like if you like the idea of playing in this world, but the filmmaking aesthetics of these B-grade films keep you out of it here's a version you can get into for mainstream audience yeah when you were talking I thought that was pretty interesting when you were talking about uh how john carpenter is making a genre film but he adds a certain panache to it that a lot of other people don't it kind of made me made, made me think of walter hill because yeah. you know they'd be like as long as you have these salacious bits in here i don't care what you do with this movie and so he would actually elevate these b movies beyond their you know their uh budgets and what audience yeah. are expecting. I love that comparison. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And that, and that, and that's what you like to see, you know, because like the fact of the matter is that, you know, when you do appreciate kind of trashy movies, like there, there is some not exactly pleasant elements that you have to put up with. Right. Sometimes you get some shitty acting, like the production values are off, you know, it's like, Oh yeah, there's a boom mic in that shot that I just have to pretend isn't there. You know? So <laughs> yeah. when you can sort of take, all of the stuff that you like from those films and put it in a sort of glossier, more professional veneer, that works for me, you know, and I think it works for probably a lot yeah, of people. It helps. Too. It helps when you have a, a, a good talent behind the lens and also someone who gives a crap. Yeah. <laughs> so that definitely, right. they're not just, it's not really an exploitation film because yes, maybe the producers are trying to get this out the door so that they can make a quick buck. But the people who are actually making the movie give a damn about sure. it. 100%. And so they're going to do their best Absolutely. job. Absolutely, Yeah. So that's what I got for you guys. Ambitious, economic, and palatable. Ryan, let's start off with your grade rating. What you got? Um, You know, this isn't the best version of what he did. Uh, I get that. Uh, but it's not bad. It's palatable to your hey, uh, point, Jason. So... I'm giving this one a C plus for chicken night and turkey. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> now, Candace, uh, we always let when we have guests on here, uh, we always give you the choice, you know, three options. You can give a grade rating, which is Team Ryan. You can give a star rating out of five, which is Team Jason. Or you can totally go AWOL and do your own thing for Team Candace. What you got? Okay, so I'm going to use Blood Drips <laughs> as a representation of the Bloody Bits horror horror show. So out of five blood drips, I give this a three point five. Excellent. Look, it, it's kind of, it's kind of right like on. a C plus. You know, yeah. it's not it's yes. better than average, but it's not great. I, I agree so much with you that that's the exact rating that I have as well. It's three and a half out of five. Well, stars because that's what I do. But uh, yeah, you know what? For today, nice. no, let's go team bloody bits. Three and a half out of five blood drops for assault on <laughs> precinct thirteen, which is the first time I've ever given anything that wasn't a star. So can't, yay. Yay, <laughs> Look yay. at that. I got uh, you into John Carpenter. I got you into blood drips. Man, dude, you're like pretty <laughs> much redesigning our show here for us live on air. Hopefully everyone's enjoying the changes out there. We're one week away from Jason becoming a fluffer on your show. So. <laughs> <laughs> Just keep the party going. Oh, man. Mothman is going to love me. Let me tell you. Yeah, Damn I'll, right. I'll, I'll start you out small with the Mongolian death lizard. <laughs> start off small. <laughs> Jason's got the softest hands in Sunland. Oh, yeah, baby. I've been uh, I've been looping them up here just for this moment. Time to shine. Candace, for everyone out there, please go ahead and uh, plug your show once again and let them know where they can find you. 
All right. If you want to find me and also Eddie the Axe and Tim Yobo, you can find us on the Bloody Bits Horror Show. We have a website or on any of your podcatchers. You'll find us on there, the Bloody Bits Horror Show. And if you uh, have some money in your bank, you can contribute to our Patreon. And if you're on the 10 hour, 10 hour, $10 mark or higher, you can get access to the Blood Bank, which is Eddie's Plex server where he has over 3,000 rare and hard-to-find exploitation and horror movies. Oh, wow. And you you can... We have this thing now where we're going to just, like, hit randomize and pick a movie that way. Oh, nice. Because it's 3,000 movies, and it could be a Godzilla movie. It could be a karate movie. It could be uh, The Beast in Heat. <laughs> like, you never <laughs> know what's going to be on there. So, yeah, uh, patreon.com forward slash bloody bits if you want to get in on that. Excellent. Man, Ryan, dude, they are outdoing us by a ton, man. We do random we do random selections out of 200. You guys are going to do random selections out of 3,000, blowing us out of the water. Yeah. We haven't even started doing it yet. We just came <laughs> up with this idea yesterday. <laughs> awesome. Well, yeah, well, I can tell. So by the time this airs, we'll be doing it for weeks. <laughs> well, I can tell you that hopefully you guys have as much fun selecting your random films as we do here at the end of our shows. Before we do that for our next film, do want to just remind everyone about the various socials and emails that we have available. You can always write to us about anything under the sun, a response to one of our reviews. Let us know about a film you think we should watch. That's going to be esotericacinema at gmail.com. And then, of course, you can also do so over the air by calling our Esoterica Cinema Hotline. 818-483-6285. As you've caught on season three, anybody that calls in, we will put your message up in an episode so that everyone can hear it. And if you you can also respond to our five-minute reviews, which if you haven't, go back and check out some of the bonus content we've been releasing. We have these really awesome five-minute reviews that usually take about 10 because we're long-winded bastards. But either way, those are a lot of fun. And then we've also got the website. If you go to our website, if it's been a while since you've been there, we've made a lot of changes. We've got a brand new logo up. We've got a brand new look and feel. We've got live players. We've got dedicated web pages for every single episode we've ever recorded. And then, of course, we've got our master list, the master list that we choose all of our films from, all 200 of them. We're going to go right now. And so if you want, uh, for anybody that's like at work or something, just looking to kill some time, uh, please don't do this if you're driving. But if you're stationary, uh, go ahead and go to esotericacinema.com. Scroll down a little bit. You'll see the list of all 200 films right there on the main page. And you can go there right now and play along with us as we wait in anticipation to see what the film's going to be. Now, Candice, what I, another thing that I like to do when we have guests is... We do this random film selection, and so I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to put that in your hands, okay? Now, you can approach this however you want. At the end of the day, all we need is a number, 1 through 200, and you can either just pick a number at random, you can use you know some sort of computation, add the ages of everyone, whatever it is, doesn't matter, but I just need a number, 1 through 200, and instead of going to random.org, we're going to go to you. What you got? Okay, I'm not going to do ages because I'm not going to out how old we are because <laughs> we ain't young. Nope. <laughs> so I think I'm just going to pick the number 108. 108. Okay, fantastic. So go ahead and check out 108, guys. See what you got there. And I'm going to scroll here. Boom, boom, boom. 
Okay, this is definitely not a genre film and a film that I have actually been really wanting to get to because this is one of my favorite filmmakers of all time. And we are going to be watching his second most recent feature, Phantom Thread from Paul Thomas Anderson. And this has been described uh, all over the place. There are people that hated this movie when it came out, said it was boring as hell. However, it seems that as time has gone on, it's sort of been elevated in its response. Um, like, like a lot of people maybe felt like certain people missed the mark when it came out. This is also Daniel Day-Lewis as the protagonist. So this is a reuniting of the team responsible for There Will Be Blood, which is one of the all-time best films ever made. So I'm really looking forward to Phantom Thread. Ryan, do you have a description for us? I do. Renowned dressmaker Reynolds Woodcock. What a name, right? And his sister Cyril are at the center of British fashion in 1950s London, dressing royalty, movie stars, heiresses, socialites, and debutantes. Women come and go in Woodcock's life. <laughs> providing <laughs> It's going to be a happy episode fashion. next week. Yeah. It's just Woodcock See you next week. <laughs> yeah. Confirmed bachelor. I love that we just whittle down his... Uh, last performance to the, that, that kind of humor. Uh, for finding the confirmed bachelor with inspiration and companionship, his carefully tailored existence soon gets soon gets disrupted by Alma, a young and strong-willed woman who becomes his muse and lover. From 2017, directed by Paul Thomas Anderson, this was Daniel Day Lewis's last film, right? I believe. I believe so. Uh, certainly, his last starring role. For now, but honestly, he probably does not support. I'm sure he's only a leading man. Right. <laughs> now, funny thing about this, by the way, this couldn't be more different from the films above and below this film, which are Poltergeist and uh, Wink and Nod to Miss Candace and Bloody Bits. Right above at 107 is Phantom of the Paradise. Man, I fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> you said Paul Thomas Anderson. I'm like, ew. <laughs> oh, so you don't like Aww. Paul Thomas Anderson. You don't like, wah, you don't like Boogie wah. Nights. You don't like There Will Be Blood. Not a, not a PTA fan. No, I'm not. Oh, wow. No, not at all. Very much not my wow. type of movie. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. That's K- Candace's John Carpenter. Well, th- thank goodness we didn't reach out to you next week, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be a lot less fun. I'd be, like, bad. I'd be like, oh, oh okay. <laughs> you didn't fuck up that bad. Well, like I said, I love Paul Thomas Anderson. Boogie Nights is an all-timer. There Will Be Blood is an all-timer. Magnolia, fantastic. So I can't say, now, this is in the period of films that I didn't really love from him. I wasn't an Inherit Vice fan. I wasn't a The Master fan. But I think this is, like, one of the last films that I need to see from him. So, Going to be happy to check this one out. Everyone else, be sure to tune into our next episode where we will be looking at Paul Thomas Anderson's Phantom Thread. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you later.